0: the last and highest court of appeal in detection when gregson or lestrade or Athelney jones are out of their depths which by the way is their normal state the matter is laid before me i examine the data as an expert and pronounce a specialist's opinion i claim no credit in such cases my name figures in no newspaper the work itself, the pleasure of finding a feel for my particular powers, is my highest reward. But you have yourself had some experience of my methods of work in the Jefferson Hope case. Yes, indeed, said I cordially. I was never so struck by anything in my life. I even embodied it in a small brochure with the somewhat fantastic title of a study in scarlet. He shook his head sadly. I glanced over it, said he. Honestly, I cannot congratulate you upon it. Detection is or ought to be an exact science, and should be treated in the same cold and unemotional manner. You have attempted to tinge it with romanticism, which produces much the same effect as if you worked a love story or an elopement into the fifth proposition of Euclid. But the romance was there, I remonstrated. I could not tamper with the facts. Some facts should be suppressed, or at least a just sense of proportion should be observed in treating them. The only point in the case which deserved mention was the curious analytical reasoning from effects to causes by which I succeeded in unraveling it. I was annoyed at this criticism of a work which had been specially designed to please him. I confess too that I was irritated by the egotism which seemed to demand that every line of my pamphlet should be devoted to his own special doings. More than once during the years that I had lived with him in Baker Street, I had observed that a small vanity underlay my companion's quiet and didactic manner. I made no remark, however, but sat nursing my wounded leg. I had had a Giselle bullet through it some time before, and though it did not prevent me from walking, it ached wearily at every change of the weather. My practice has extended recently to the continent, said Holmes after a while filling up his old briar-root pipe I was consulted last week by Francois Leviard, who, as you probably know, has come rather to the front lately in the French detective service. He has all the Celtic power of quick intuition, but he is deficient in the wide range of exact knowledge which is essential to the higher developments of his art. The case was concerned with a will and possessed some features of interest. I was able to refer him to two parallel cases, the one at Riga in 1857 and the other at St. Louis in 1871, which have suggested to him the true solution. Here is the letter which I had this morning acknowledging my assistance. He tossed over, as he spoke, a crumpled sheet of foreign notepaper. I glanced my eyes down it, catching a profusion of notes of admiration with stray magnifiques coups de maître and tour de force, all testifying to the ardent admiration of the Frenchman. He speaks as a pupil to his master, said I. Oh, he rates my assistance too highly, said Sherlock Holmes lightly. He has considerable gifts himself. He possesses two out of the three qualities necessary for the ideal detective. He has the power of observation and that of deduction. He is only wanting in knowledge, and that may come in time. He is now translating my small works into French. Your works? Oh, didn't you know? He cried laughingly. Yes, I have been guilty of several monographs. They are all upon technical subjects. Here, for example, is one upon the distinction between the ashes of the various tobaccos. In it, I enumerate 140 forms of cigar, cigarette, and pipe tobacco, with colored plates illustrating the difference in the ash. It is a point which is continually turning up in criminal trials, and which is sometimes of supreme importance as a clue. If you can say definitely, for example, that some murder has been done by a man who was smoking an Indian lonka, it obviously narrows your field of search. To the trained eye, there is as much difference between the black ash of a trichinopoly and the white fluff of bird's eye as there is between a cabbage and a potato. You have an extraordinary genius for minutiae, I remarked. I appreciate their importance. Here is my monograph upon the tracing of footsteps, with some remarks upon the uses of plaster of Paris as a preserver of impresses. Here, too, is a curious little work upon the influence of a trade upon the form of the hand, with lithotypes of the hands of slaters, sailors, cork cutters, compositors, weavers, and diamond polishers, That is a matter of great practical interest to the scientific detective, especially in cases of unclaimed bodies or in discovering the antecedents of criminals. But I weary you with my hobby. Not at all, I answered earnestly. It is of the greatest interest to me, especially since I have had the opportunity of observing your practical application of it. But you spoke just now of observation and deduction. Surely the one, to some extent, implies the other. Why, hardly, he answered, leaning back luxuriously in his armchair and sending up thick blue wreaths from his pipe. For example, observation shows me that you have been to the Wigmore Street post office this morning, but deduction lets me know that when there you dispatched a telegram. Right, said I, right on both points. But I confess that I don't see how you arrived at it. It was a sudden impulse upon my part, and I have mentioned it to no one. It is simplicity itself, he remarked, chuckling at my surprise. So absurdly simple that an explanation is superfluous, and yet it may serve to define the limits of observation and of deduction. Observation tells me that you have a little reddish mould adhering to your instep. Just opposite the Wigmore Street office, they have taken up the pavement and thrown up some earth, which lies in such a way that it is difficult to avoid treading in it and entering. The earth is of this particular reddish tint which is found, so far as I know, nowhere else in the neighborhood. So much is observation. The rest is deduction. How, then, did you deduce the telegram? Why, of course I knew that you had not written a letter since I sat opposite to you all the morning. I see also in your open desk there that you have a sheet of stamps and a thick bundle of postcards. "'What could you go into the post office for, then, but to send a wire? "'Eliminate all other factors, and the one which remains must be the truth.' "'In this case it certainly is so,' I replied after a little thought. "'The thing, however, is, as you say, of the simplest. "'Would you think me impertinent if I were to put your theories to a more severe test?' "'On the contrary,' he answered, "'it would prevent me from taking a second dose of cocaine.' I should be delighted to look into any problem which you might submit to me. I have heard you say that it is difficult for a man to have any object in daily use without leaving the impress of his individuality upon it in such a way that a trained observer might read it. Now, I have here a watch which has recently come into my possession. Would you have the kindness to let me have an opinion upon the character or habits of the late owner?' I handed him the watch with some slight feeling of amusement in my heart, for the test was, as I thought, an impossible one, and I intended it as a lesson against the somewhat dogmatic tone which he occasionally assumed. He balanced the watch in his hand, gazed hard at the dial, opened the back, and examined the works, first with his naked eyes, and then with a powerful convex lens. I could hardly keep from smiling at his crestfallen face. When he finally snapped the case to and handed it back there are hardly any data he remarked the watch has been recently cleaned which robs me of my most suggestive facts you are right i answered it was clean before being sent to me in my heart i accused my companion of putting forward a most lame and impotent excuse to cover his failure what data could be expected from an unclean watch Though unsatisfactory, my research has not been entirely barren. He observed, staring up at the ceiling with dreamy, lacklustre eyes. Subject to your correction, I should judge that the watch belonged to your elder brother, who inherited it from your father. That you gather, no doubt, from the H.W. upon the back? Quite so. The W. suggests your own name. The date of the watch is nearly 50 years back, and the initials are as old as the watch. So it was made for the last generation. Jewelry usually descends to the eldest son, and he is most likely to have the same name as his father. Your father has, if I remember right, been dead many years. It has, therefore, been in the hands of your eldest brother. Right so far, said I. Anything else? He was a man of untidy habits, very untidy and careless. He was left with good prospects, but he threw away his chances, lived for some time in poverty with occasional short intervals of prosperity, and finally taking to drink.